This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Woman is Claire Williams from Barclays PLC. Claire is Director, Head of Reputation Risk, Corporate Communications at Barclays. We're thrilled to have Claire join us today and talk about reputation risk. I'm very thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, You've had a fascinating career, and I'm just going to uh, give a brief synopsis, but you worked as a diplomat at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, You had postings all over the world, Paris, Moscow, Mexico City. You entered the financial industry with HSBC Corporate Communications and were involved in the integration of Midland Montague into HSBC, Um, then Credit Agricole, and you joined Barclays, I believe, in 2007 um, in corporate communications and have obviously held a range of different roles uh, in Hong Kong and now back in London, and obviously we met in Hong Kong. Yeah. So tell me more. You started your career (laughs) as a diplomat. Yeah. How's the journey gone? (laughs) How's the journey gone? Well, it's funny that we're actually having this conversation today because I'm, today is the day we're recording for the purposes of this interview um, on the day that the A-level results come out in the UK. So I remember very well, and I'm not going to say how many moons ago it was that I had my A-level results and I'd crashed, completely crashed my French A-level, a subject that, I mean, a language that I'd been learning since I was three and I just absolutely bombed it. And uh, so university was completely out of the question. And my personal circumstances were such that I couldn't go back and you know, do another year. So what was I going to do? And I was already doing a secretarial course because my parents thought that was always something useful to fall back on. And as a result of that uh, year doing that, I then went into the foreign office um, on that track. So to describe me as being a diplomat is probably a bit of a misnomer, although I did have diplomatic status in Mexico City by the end. But it was an interesting, um, it was a, it was a beginning of a very fascinating journey and really cemented my interest in geopolitics in particular um, and just the world in general and, and, live, and living and understanding uh, different cultures. So Paris was just an extraordinary place to be for a young person. Um, Uh, I loved it, but I'd always wanted to go to the Soviet Union as it was in those days. So off I went to the Soviet Union where I had a very curious role in a tiny department, which was the scientific department, which back in the 1980s was sort of a questionable department as to what it was really going to achieve. And one of the key things that we were expected to do was to, or that my bosses expected to do, was to go out into into the fields and pick up a piece of wheat and so that we would be able to assess what the wheat harvest was going to be like and therefore the impact on the Soviet economy. I mean, really strange things like that that we that he had to do. And we reported back to London on with the sort of exercise in not quite futility, but it was interesting. 
And it was a fascinating place to be, just just living in that environment of a very uh, closed society um, with you know, very communist and everything that goes with that. And then off to Mexico City, where I had a really interesting role uh, working for the uh, the number two in the embassy who was uh, involved in um, economics and, and the commercial section. And this was the first, I was there during the first Mexican tequila crisis. And so the ECGD were coming over, Bank of England and all kinds of people flying in the IMF to try and sort Mexico's massive financial problem out. And that was what really got me interested in this other world of which I had very little knowledge but was having some insight into. And so although I came back to London and worked for two and a half years for the, the foreign secretary and had an extraordinary privileged time flying around the world with him and the team, um, and this was the time of apartheid in South Africa uh, when we were doing a lot of work with the frontline states, so travelled all over Africa, um, trying to resolve some of the, you know, the world's very intractable problems at the time. But then, big bang, and this interest that I developed uh, put me into, into it was actually Midland Montague, yes, the, the, the Midland Bank of old. And uh, I went into corporate communications, starting off um, doing events and hospitality and conferences, sponsorship, but working in the brand team. So I got a very clear insight into marketing and advertising and how that can, how you use that as a tool to build reputation. And then I got involved in internal communications. And then I was incredibly lucky and got um, selected to go to university. Midland had a, had a program at the time called Campus where they identified leader, leaders of the future who had not been to university and they put, put, put um, 24 of us per year through university. So I went and did a year um, full-time at City University doing a diploma in management and organizational studies, which was a, you know, a, an extraordinary opportunity for which I'm very grateful. And the day we finished our final exam was the day that it was announced that HSBC were buying Midland. And so that was, you know, nobody was recruiting, uh, but I was lucky in that I got a job in the newly re-energized Samuel Montague, which was the old merchant bank. And uh, I worked there for three years um, and then got involved in the integration of Samuel Montague and James Capel. So did a lot of integration communication. And by that stage, I'd done seven years with the organization. Um, it had changed. I felt I needed to move on. So I went to, I signed my contract with uh, Boncain de Suez. And six weeks later, it was announced that it was buying it was being bought by Credit Agricole, so I was doing integration communications again. So it really cemented those skills that I developed. Um, but I, after a year, I, I got approached by Nomura, in fact, to go and work there and to be head of investment banking communications. And that was at a time when Nomura was really in the most um, unusual position of buying up what seemed to be certainly to the media, most of England. Um, I started in the July and in the September, we bought seven and a half thousand pubs. And why were we buying seven and a half thousand pubs? So that was a real baptism, baptism of fire for me, working with people, um, edit, you know, journalists on the sun, explaining, you know, the headline you can imagine was nip on down to the rising sun, <laughs> but, you know, explaining <laughs> securitization with them. So it was a very good, it was a very good um 
time there and I eventually became head of European communications when my predecessor left and that was it was just it was fascinating because people say oh what was it like working for a Japanese bank but actually it was a very international bank with something like 75 nationalities working in the one building so it was a, a real insight into a very multicultural environment but but with Japanese characteristics without question. And um, then I, after 10 years there, I, I left and actually thought I wasn't going to continue in a career in communications and investment banking. Um, and the fact that this was, if I told you this was February 2007, it would show you that I wasn't very good at predicting the future in financial services. <laughs> um, but uh, Barclays, uh, I was, again, very lucky that I had a good contact at Barclays. And I ended up, as you know, starting in Hong Kong in the October of 2007, just as the financial crisis was really beginning to to, to take off. And that was, again, just that period in Hong Kong where, I, we can talk about this, to some extent Asia was, was inured mm. to, the, to what was going on. It, it, it was impacted, but not to the degree that other countries were um, in the West. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's really sort of where, I, where I got to. That's my journey. It's, yes. it's, it's been... My my boss always describes it as being rather unorthodox route into communications, but I'm not so sure that it is because in, I mean, we're always accused of spinning, right? As in, in corporate communications, but I, so I instead of spinning for my country, I was spinning for my company. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, I love so many great elements there. Very global career. You've you know seen so many different things across different cultures and and places. Um, communication, I think, is you know, always key no matter which industry, no matter which, you know, company that you're in. And then mm. obviously integration and change. And mm. I mean, we continue to see so much change yeah. and disruption today. So it'll be interesting to get into um, even more around that. So your your role today um, um, in reputation management. Yes. Tell us more about what is that role and what, you know, what, what are the key elements in that? Yeah, it's quite, it's an there aren't many organizations that have a dedicated reputation risk team from what I've been able to establish. Um, and it is really, it, it's it's twofold in that, I would say, in that one one part is around governance. So I, would, I should explain that I sit in corporate communications, but the and we are a reputation risk is, is one of our eight principal risks at Barclays under our enterprise risk management framework. So the the key risk officer is the head of compliance um, uh, in the second line. But I sit in the first line or my, my team and I sit in the first line and we are really helping to support the business in understanding and mitigating reputation risk across the business, across Barclays. Um, but we're also, we also have been helping compliance in developing a new, uh, a new framework, policies, and then working with uh, colleagues in corporate relations and across the bank to develop standards under our own, under the reputation risk framework so that we can do some kind of uh, evaluation, quantitative evaluation, but it is a very qualitative principal risk. 
Um, and I think the holy grail is always to be able to, of, of all people who cover reputation risk wherever they sit in an organisation, is to be able to develop some kind of amazing quantitative set of quantitative metrics. But it, it, I think there's a danger in that because it never, never will give you the entirety of what is what is the reputation risk that you're running. And so that's what we're really looking at is trying to um, advise the business when they're thinking of a new product or a new service about what thinking about the reputation impact of what that might what that could develop into um and then there will be certain transactions that we would look at to again look at the reputation risk for barclays uh, in particular but sometimes more broadly than and so beyond beyond barclays um of of the of the impact of what a tra- getting involved in a certain transaction might be and I'm sure we'll get into more of that when we get into the expert um, section because I think there's probably intersections across lots of different areas there um, that we could talk about. But, you know, really fascinating um, career. And as you said, it may be a little unorthodox. So, you know, you have effectively changed industries. Your career path is sort of woven through different countries, et cetera. I mean, what advice do you have for people to pursue different opportunities and how to think about that? Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's very clear that f- f- the beginning of my career, I, I, I mean, I knew that I wanted to be in the foreign office and do do sit, travel. And I, I always call it traveling safely because you arrived at a destination and there was you know, always somebody there to greet you at the airport and you had somewhere to move into. So it was a, it was a very safe route. I have to say, but fascinating. And I think my advice would be: it depends on your on your character as to whether you want to leap into the unknown or do something with a bit more, or work for something that's a bit more structured. And again, we can talk about you know internal mobility within a large organisation, which gives you the opportunity to go abroad. And I did. I went to Hong Kong, and that was a, a risk, a real risk for me and for Barclays. I mean, I hadn't worked for them before, but they sent me out there unknown quantity really although you know obviously they did their background checks um but then they gave me that opportunity to and I didn't talk about this actually when I was in Hong Kong I moved after seven years of being head of comms to doing a role that I felt was would broaden my skill set which was to do diversity and inclusion and citizenship and by citizenship we this was not the, the the programming that we had across asia but more around the purpose values and behaviors the new um the new set of um the, the sort of the new ambition for barclays at that time so that was again for me taking quite a risk and i think i think it's really important to, and particularly nowadays where we're not nobody is going to have a monoline career i just think those days are over and people have to have the 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 res- develop the resilience to to move into different industries and different sectors and to be open to that challenge. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because yes, that role in um Hong Kong as the citizenship and diversity and inclusion obviously we had a lot to um do with each other and do you mm. think a lot of those initiatives and um the discussion around diversity inclusion and equality in society do you think that's translating well and working with uh within the financial industry i do actually i think i'm i'm particularly from the uk perspective where we now have to report on the gender pay gap 
Mm. I think it's really having an impact. And I was thinking about it as I was talking to somebody last night and saying that sometimes I think that it's it's unfortunate that we that most of our networks are called the women's network. And I think they should actually be reframed and called the gender equality network. Because I think it then brings the men much more into the into the conversation and the debate and their understanding and as you know I got very involved or we are as Barclays very involved in he for she and I think it's so important to have men as part of the part of the thinking how this is how we're going to be able to make things better and I think um, the other observation I have around all of this is that the is that ESG and I know we can talk about that a lot more also in a moment but I think ESG investors, it's becoming more mainstream and they are looking at what is the diversity, both um, in terms of gender, but also in terms of race, uh, in not just in the boards, on the boards, but in the leadership and, the, and, the, what, and what's coming through. So I think it's really becoming more and more important. And in this world where the the kids coming through out of university have so much choice as to what they're going to be doing and they look at financial services and they need to see that there is that that, that it reflects them that's the really important thing so i think it has having is having a big impact on financial services not just in the way we recruit people think about recruitment but also in in promotion and bringing people and if you're bringing people in at the more senior level is not accepting a a shortlist that is only men you've got to ask for where are the women and I think that's that's put a bit of a rocket also up the executive search um, consultancies also uh, that they have to give much greater consideration they have to find they have to work harder they have to find yeah, the women absolutely yeah no so that's um yeah interesting insights there so let's move on to our expert opinion mm. section uh 2018 has already seen a lot of high-profile uh, uh, incendiary crises engulf well-known corporations. Um, we've had governments and individuals, uh, you know, go through many issues, and there are many stories almost daily in the press. Um, even in my home country of Australia, uh, we've got an ongoing royal commission. It's almost creating real-time examples of reputational challenges. Um, as it's looking at and investigating potential misconduct within the Australian financial services industry. So reputation has never been more fragile and reputational threats are increasing exponentially. Um, amplifying this situation is the rapidly changing communications environment. So you've got the divide between new and traditional media is almost non-existent. You know, smartphones are the primary news source. And reputations can be built and or lost on a like. Uh, the need to understand and mitigate and manage risk has never been more acute. So I would argue your role is, you know, getting even more important. Um, so given your role um, and, and looking at reputational risk for a firm as large in scope and as scale as Barclays, do you feel that managing risk and reputation has become more challenging in the age of social media and the internet? And how is that playing out? Absolutely. Um, it, it is in this 24-7 world that we live in where it, and uh, it's extraordinary and it has become much, I think, it's much more complex to manage without question. Um, you know, most people now joke about waking up every morning to see what 
you know, the President of the United States has tweeted and what impact that can have across the world on, on, or on a client or on an individual that you have, might have a banking relationship with. And it's, it's absolutely huge. Uh, so it's very challenging. And the, um, the, the, it's just the sheer proliferation of bloggers, vloggers, um, you, know, you name it, that they're all out there and they all, and people, they all have an opinion. And it's not always, you have to be able to, the challenge I think for people in corporate communications and people managing reputation is, is passing that and knowing who are the people who are the most influential, who can, who can really have an impact on your reputation and how do you manage them and how do you get to know them? And how do you try to do that? How do you look at that ecosystem and and try yeah. to you know manage and mitigate that risk? Well, it's uh, you you obviously monitor mm. all the time mm. and have new. You're looking at news feeds. You're looking at um, social media feeds. Uh, you're getting report reporting in on a daily basis to see what's going on. And some of it's a lot of noise and some of it you then have to, as I say, just have that ability to 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 look at it and go, actually, this one's important. And it may be that they've only got, let's say on a tweet, maybe, maybe they only have 4.5 thousand followers but who are those followers so you need to go right through and really do your your sort of your due diligence on those on these people to understand you know just how important they can be and it and it's interesting because obviously it can have impact yes on the firm itself but obviously the industry as well yeah. and i mean if you look at things like i mean so reputation you could pretty much start to um marry very closely with trust yeah and obviously financial markets and the trust in financial markets is, is fairly low at the moment. Yes. And if you look at the Edelman Index, yeah. I think, and yeah. they rank all different industries, institutions, yeah. government, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's very challenging as to how you even build all of the, you know, yes, monitoring, anticipating yeah. what might be the, the issues. And as you exactly. said, like even when you're coming out with new products and stuff, mm. you're having to look at all of that yeah. and across the globe. Yes. And that, and it's it obviously depends on your country of operation, but it's, it's more about how can you be, it's being relevant to your clients, having that intelligence, that, in, that inside knowledge that a, a, a client in a certain sector who, you know, is, wants to go into a new country, and you need to be able to understand what their what their risks are and what the risks are that you have as an organisation in helping them develop that. So, what have been the greatest challenges that have you know that Barclays has faced in recent years, um, and how do you try to prepare and plan and anticipate for those? Mm. Well, obviously, the financial crisis in the last ten years have been very challenging across the sector, and that's a you know, that's a given. I think one of the biggest challenges we've had is preparing for ring fencing, uh, which in fact has gone gone very well. But uh, just just effectively splitting the bank into Barclays International, which is more the investment banking corporate bank side, and and then moving clients across into the Barclays UK side. That's that was you know there's a huge reputation risk around that if you haven't managed it well. And so you have to bring in 
um, many multiple players across the organization to, to, to make that work well. And then the whole communication with the clients who are impacted by the split, because um, you want them to have trust in you that mm. it's going to work well. And you're right to come back to that earlier part of our conversation around reputa reputation is trust. I think it's absolutely, you know, if people cannot trust us to do our job well, then they're not going to bank with us. It's as simple as that. So reputation is all in this sector. In a services sector, it's all, it's everything. I mean, look what's happened to Facebook. And mm. the and the the knock-on effect of something like that, where they've had to hire 20,000 people in order to mitigate yes. the risks that they ran, it's a huge operating cost if you if you get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're knock-on effects. And so do you think that your approach is different from previous styles of reputation and, and risk management, you know, from the past, given all the change, given yeah. the social media elements? Well, I, I, think, well I think what has happened is that reputation risk has risen up the agenda and that it's become something that needs to, uh, not just in Barclays, but in other many other organisations, is much more sort of operationalised, and it becomes part of the strategic thinking. If we do this, what will the what will the impact be? And I think, to some degree, though, that got lost uh, in the last few you know, several, maybe couple of decades, that people hadn't really thought about it. That that, that there it was. It wasn't part of the culture to think about reputation. And, and you know, I have this title of reputation risk, and that's really what I'm doing. Is I'm just helping to mitigate and, and support the business in getting it right. But every single person in any organisation has the responsibility of making sure that they don't damage the reputation of the bank or of themselves as an individual. You want to go and work. You want to you want to be able to stand in a bar on a Friday night and and say, you know, I work for a good organisation. Yeah. And this is what it does. And this is why it's you can trust us. Yeah, it's interesting because there's so every single touch point is going to have an impact mm -hmm. on your reputation yeah. uh, across the organization. Um, and that's quite, you know, that's boiling the ocean in terms <laughs> yes. of where you could look. Yes. Um, so you have to put it into the business. You have to make sure that the business, yes, as I say, that you've, you've operationalized it, that it just becomes, you don't almost don't even think about it. That it's just a given that what you're going to do, the decision that you is take, is the kind of right thing to do. Is the right thing to yeah. do. Yeah. So I mean, is that kind of the key lesson mm. to be learnt around how to manage reputation and how to manage that risk? Yeah. Yes. Embedded in the business. Yeah. Put the put the responsibility. You know, give them the tools and the freight and the, as I said at the very beginning, the framework and the policy and the guidance. Um, but and then they get on and do the business and you know, I hope it doesn't go wrong. And and given several of the crises that have happened and you you mentioned Facebook and there's there's been many others mm. um, that obviously affect those individual companies but more broadly. Mm. Um, you know what what's your view on you know when should they communicate what kind of things that they should say and this whole kind of you know can silence ever be golden really? I don't think silence can ever be golden. I think because given what we've just been talking about the 24 hour nature of the of media these days and and how things if you don't address an issue pretty quickly then it will get addressed for you and the and the 
uh, you you, are, you don't own it. Yeah. And so you cannot. So why, that's why so many organizations have crises management plans. They have massive playbooks. But you can bet your bottom dollar that what you've been planning for is not what has actually happened to you. It, you know, the sidewinder missile comes in and you just have not seen it coming. And there's a great um, judge business school has this great, great saying, which is um, just plan for surprises. Yeah, and I think this is—it's all you can—you can, you know, with the best will in the world, but you never know what's going to come. And is there any, you know, what do you think has been like really good examples of where there has been a, a particular, you know, crisis or reputational risk issue, not necessarily in Barclays, just more broadly that you think has been handled particularly well? Um, I th- actually that's an interesting one. I'm not sure that anybody's done it brilliantly yet but I think what I think what I would say is I've seen organizations who when a crisis has hit and have learned the lessons from that crisis and how they have then um, re-engineered their organization and thought very hard about what kind of company they want to be and what they want to say about themselves so something like Siemens for example which had that huge problem many years ago and then I think if you look at the chemical sector in general like so BASF, I think, was re- at the time, really, I think they've set a, they set the, the bar very high for how you take a crisis and turn it into an opportunity and just reframe whatever's going on in, in your sector. And I think the financial services sector has still probably got a bit of a way to go with that. Yeah. And do you think there's a role for regulatory changes that would help sort of mitigate future scandals and well i think I think from a from a financial services sector perspective, I think the regulations that have been put in place have been very good, and you know you hope that they are sufficient to make you make the sector safe for many years to come, but you just never know where the next crisis may come from. Or whether you know what may happen next, but I think more broadly around. So coming back to something like Facebook, uh, the, the uh, or social media in general, where is the regulatory oversight? And I, I think there needs to be some thought given now to to that, because it's moved from being these 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 companies have moved from being startups and innovative and exciting and so on to being much so embedded in everyday life that. There's an expectation from multiple stakeholders that that they're going to not behave well, but do the right thing. Again, comes back to doing the right thing. And but the problem is, is that so much regulation is was fit for the 20th century, but is not fit for the digital age, the yeah. 20 the 21st century. So I think there's a whole huge conversation that needs to go on. And necessarily government may not be the right people. To work on this on their own, they need, it needs to be a very collaborative effort with because it impacts. It's just so invasive now. And how are they going to cope? How how are all, how is government or how are all of us going to cope with AI, um, automation, big data? The challenges that those th- are throwing up now are huge, and mm. a government alone can't do it, or even in one large international body. And another, I mean, we talked a little bit about other areas that you'd been involved in. So intertwining diversity and risk, Mm -hmm. what's, you know, 
Do you think there's a risk in lack of diversity? Uh, without question. I mean, mm. you and I have talked about this in the past, but and I haven't brought any of the statistics with me today, but the statistics tell you everything you need to know, that uh, a more diverse company has better better results. I referred earlier to the, uh, the, the institutional investor community looking at this now, and I just don't think it's going to... It's not going to... Is not going to cut it in the 21st century. The risk of not reflecting back the clients, the customers, the recruits that you want to have in your own organisation, then you're never going. You're not going to succeed. And across the broader, you mentioned ESG, environmental, social, mm. and governance before, and the investor community. So, do you think now that there is a changing view, and that? you know, people will be uh, judging more on how firms behave environmentally, yeah. how they behave, you know, with good governance and that you already mentioned from a, you know, diversity perspective. Um, but how does that play out with performance? Because a lot of people say the millennials are all going to invest in, you know, and this is probably a bit off topic but kind of interesting in terms yeah. of will they really, they don't have any money at the moment to really make those investments to show us. Well, I think they will. I think, yes, they don't have the money, may not have the money right now, but I'm sure they will, many of them. But I, coming back to the, e, the institutional investors in ESG, we were a member of the task force um, on uh, climate-related financial disclosures, part of the, F the FSB task force that was set up by um, Governor Carney and, and Mike Bloomberg. And now we're working through with, uh, with, um, with the um, UN and others on how we can uh, take those uh, rec the recommendations of the task force and bring them into the organisation and do reporting. And we are seeing people like BlackRock asking questions about what are you doing about this? How are you going to implement the recommendations? So as I say, we've been working on a, within a group to, of other banks to look at how we can do that because it's highly complex, but there is an expectation that this will get done. Mm. And if we don't, and I, my view, and it's my own personal view, is that if banks don't do it, then the regulators will make us do it. So, you know, it's a sort okay, of that's kind of, that's good then. Mm. So, Claire, is reputation management a new area? No, I don't think so. Um, Socrates, 4th century BC, said this, regard your good name as the richest jewel you can possibly be possessed of, for credit is like fire. When once you have kindled it, you may easily preserve it. But if you once extinguish it, you will find it an arduous task to rekindle it again. So this has been going on for millennia. People concerned about reputation, which, as we know, takes a long time to build, but a nanosecond in this 24-7 world to destroy. Yes, indeed. Very good. Connecting, celebrating and championing women in risk regulation and compliance Risky Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. Okay, our next section is one of my favourites, Risky Women, Rants and Revelations. Mm. <laughs> so what is your revelation, uh, which, you know, that piece of advice that you would like to give to our listeners and that, you know, who are maybe starting out in their careers? Yeah. I, I was... Thought long enough. I, I, I wish I'd been bolder, younger. 
and just leapt out, not not done that, not done the safety blanket, but just gone, right, okay, the world is my oyster. I'll just go out and grab it. And I should have done it earlier. Excellent. <laughs> um, and your rant, what one thing would you like to change now? I... I'm with you, and I, you know, I'm such an admirer of the work that you've done on modern slavery and and the challenges. And I, and since moving to the UK, where it is le- it it is less obvious because I think when you've worked in Asia and you travel a lot in Asia, you see it around you all the time. And actually, I think in the UK it can be very can feel very hidden. And every time I go into a nail bar now, I look and see are these girls Vietnamese, and I wonder if they've been in any way coerced into doing what they're doing. And I would I would like the UK in general to be much more alive to what is under their nose. Yeah, hidden in plain sight. Hidden in plain sight, exactly. Excellent. Risky Women is a vibrant network at the centre of a global community in a rapidly growing, evolving and influential industry. Given the continued pace of change, our Rapid Fire Round revisits the most pressing topics to share ideas and offer listeners new perspectives. Okay, now, finally, in our wrap-up, our Risky Women Rapid Fire Round, what one word would sum up the world from a governance, risk and regulation perspective for you? Uncertainty. And what do you think is our top risk for 2018? Geopolitical uncertainty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Any cures for the cost of compliance or the cost of regulation? AI. (laughs) Excellent. Um, And biggest technology impact on compliance and risk? Yeah. Same again? Same again. And uh, outlook for the year ahead, are you optimistic, pessimistic or uncertain? Well, I'm a mixture of the three. Am I allowed to be that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm optimistic for me and the way Barclays is going, but I'm and I'm slightly pessimistic about some of the things that are going on in the world and therefore uncertain. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Risky Woman, Claire Williams. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Risky Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter or even reaching out to me directly by email.